Well, friends, I love the holidays. I love the holidays so much. I love sitting on the sand. I love listening to the waves. I love reading. I love family time. It's a wonderful opportunity for rest and relaxation. But here's the thing. It can also be a time that is spiritually disorientating. You know, we can focus so much on physical rest while neglecting spiritual rest with Christ. We can experience a change to our usual disciplines of spending time with God, and we can come to the end of the holidays physically rested, but spiritually dry, anxious, maybe even resentful about returning to work, and maybe even apathetic about God's word. You know, here's one thing that's true. No one ever gets to the end of a holiday and says, that was life-changing. My life is completely changed. I am completely refreshed and rested. I can now go back to work and enjoy life in a new way. No one ever says that. What, what do we say at the end of holidays? We say, I wish that was a bit longer. I wish I could go back just one more week away. You see, the truth is the true rest actually comes from our relationship with God, from knowing his presence with us at all times, from knowing his power to do all things, from knowing his purposes in everything that we set our hands to, for knowing that our work doesn't ultimately determine our future. And it's easy to believe that the way to rest, alternatively, is to sit on a couch and binge another episode of dot, 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 you answer the blank. Yet while one of the primary ways in which we can rest is actually through spending time with the Lord in meditation on his words. More than that, it's, it's one of the primary ways in which we can find joy and guidance in life and everything we need. And so at the start of a new year, we're going to pause and reflect on this familiar truth this morning as a church. You know, if you're taking notes, uh, I've entitled this message, A Treasure for the Heart. And really, I have three simple points, and yet just one hope that the writer of this psalm has for us this morning, and that is this, that we would experience the life-giving power of treasuring God's word. That's what this psalmist wants for us this morning in our passage. He wants us to experience the life-giving, life-changing power that comes from treasuring this word. And so that's where we're going this morning together. You know, our psalm, Psalm 119, maybe if you're less familiar with the Bible, is a very long psalm. It's the longest psalm in the Bible, and it's the mighty redwood amongst the great psalms of the scriptures. It's more than twice as long as the nearest psalm, and it has 176 verses. It's an acrostic poem that goes through each of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, with eight verses on each letter, each commencing with that letter. And this psalm is devoted to the wonderful theme of delighting in God's word. Uh, Alan Ross, in his really excellent commentary uh, on the Psalms, says the following about this psalm. He explains the psalm this way. He says, speaking of the psalmist, 
finding himself in persecution from powerful people who ridicule his faith in an effort to shaming him into abandoning it, the psalmist strengthens himself by his detailed meditations on the word of the Lord, which is his comfort, his prized possession, his rule of life, his resource for strength, and his message of hope, all of which inspire him to desire it even more, to live by it, and and to pray for its fulfillment. You see, in the midst of a terrible storm, the writer of Psalm 119 finds comfort in this word. He finds this word as his strength, his all, his everything. And this psalm really has a prologue at the beginning, and that's the first two stanzas. The first stanza explains the blessing that comes from walking in the instruction of the Lord, and the psalmist longing to be that kind of man who walks in the instruction of the Lord. And our stanza, the second stanza on the Hebrew letter Beit, the word in this stanza is all about the word's power to keep his way clean and to lead him on the path of life. And that leads us really to our first point this morning as we dive into our passage. Point number one, a life-giving path. You know, when I was in university uh, training to be a physiotherapist many years ago, I spent the last two years of my degree traveling from DAPTO, where I lived on the south coast, to the University of Sydney uh, in order to do my studies. And I drove in every day. It was quite an intensive course. And I remember around exam time, I was so determined to get high marks in my studies that I would stay up really late studying and then arrive, you know, wake up at about 5 o'clock in the morning to drive into university to uh, do my exams. And I remember on a couple of occasions, as a young man, uh, fighting to stay awake while driving all the way into the city. Uh, and I remember on a couple of occasions during my exam time, finding myself drifting off to sleep while driving on the freeway and waking up at the very last minute on one occasion as my car was headed straight into the median strip, uh, doing 100 kilometres an hour just outside of Wollongong. There's nothing like almost uh, crashing your car at 100 kilometres an hour to wake you up and to give you a very uh, alert drive for the rest of the trip. But you see, the thing is, if you fall asleep at the wheel, you and those in your car are in grave danger. But there's an even greater danger in life than falling asleep at the wheel of a car and that is falling asleep at the wheel of life. You see, God's word is meant to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That's what this psalm says in verse 105. And yet, if we lose our vision of God's word, it's just like falling asleep at the wheel. It's just like closing your eyes while driving. It's just like turning the lights off while driving at night on the freeway. And it's incredibly dangerous. Why don't you read with me uh, the very beginning of our passage, verse 9, says the following. The psalmist writes, How can a young man keep his way pure? The psalmist begins our section with a question. How can a young man keep his way pure? This young man, given the previous section, which was about the psalmist's desire as a young man to keep God's instructions, is likely the psalmist himself. The psalmist is saying, how can I keep my way pure? How can I live in a way that pleases God? How can I keep myself from doing things that will defile me? 
You know what? If you've come to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, if the Holy Spirit has caused you to come to uh, awake to a personal sense of sin and a need, your need for Christ, this question ought to be of great concern to you. How can I keep my way pure? And the answer is given in the second half of this verse. The psalm says, how can a young man, how can I keep my way pure? By guarding it according to your word. By guarding it. This word guard means to keep watch over, to watch over, to preserve or protect. There is a need, according to this psalm, to keep watch over our path in life using this word of God. You know, there's a belief among many Christians that life in this fallen world as a Christian is safe. You know, if you look around us, our community, it looks really safe. There's no obvious crime. There's not any obvious poverty. There doesn't seem to be very many needs. And we can falsely assume that, therefore, this world is safe. You know, you can begin to think that you can travel through life following Jesus without Christian community, without any need for prayer, without any need for this word of God. You'll be completely fine. And because there are no obvious great dangers in our Christian life, we can begin to devote the early years of our life to more pressing issues, like buying a home or schooling our kids or career progression. And we can begin to think to ourselves, you know, growing spiritually can wait. And so we don't serve. And so we don't give. And so we don't commit. And so we don't give ourselves to prayer or to community. But the truth is this. The Christian life is not lived out in the midst of peacetime, but a great spiritual war. And this spiritual war has many, many dangerous enemies. Here's just three. Danger number one, the desires of the world. The Lord Jesus says this himself in Mark chapter 4, verse 18. He says, in explaining the parable of the sower, he says, And the others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Friends, there are desires in this life and in this world that will choke and strangle your faith completely. Danger number two, not just the desires of the world, but the desires of the flesh. Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. We have hearts that really fundamentally desire to listen to the things that we want to hear. 
And so there's a constant danger in our Christian life of listening to our flesh and wandering away from obedience and faithfulness to the Lord. But not just the desires of the world, not just the desires of the flesh. Thirdly, there's also the devil himself. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know, speaking on this topic of our great enemy, the devil, John Piper says this. He says, we have a supernatural enemy. First John says that the whole world lies under the power of the evil one. It hit me like it never had before, that the world is absolutely defenseless against the devil. They have zero defenses against the supernatural power of the devil, and he hates them. He hates marriages. He hates people. He hates God. He hates churches. He hates you. Without the word of God, we have zero defense, none. Do you believe that? None. He's called the God of this world for a reason, 2 Corinthians 4.4. He rules absolutely except where God's providence restrains him. And oh, believe me, God's providence is restraining him big time everywhere. Nobody knows what mercy they are enjoying when the sun comes up or this land of ours holds together another day. Isn't that true? You know, the Christian life is filled with many dangers. And yet God has given us everything we need right here in this word. Read with me verse 11. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word is able to keep us from sinning against him. Without it, we're falling asleep at the wheel. We're driving blind on the freeway. But with it, we can drive fast with the high beams on. We can see far ahead on the path of life. And that's what our psalmist wants us to see. He wants us to see that this word is a life-giving, life-breathing path. It will help to keep you pure. It doesn't mean sinless, but it does mean on the right path in life. And that's point number one. A life-giving path. Not just point number one, a life-giving path. Point number two, a priceless treasure. Now, what comes to mind when you think about spending time in the Word? Duty? It's that thing you should do. Guilt? That thing you should do, but you know you're not really doing? How about boredom? Or alternatively, what about a precious treasure? You know, this week I was reading about and thinking about the crown jewels of the United Kingdom. It's actually a collection of 142 different individual uh, objects. And the one that caught my attention was one object in particular, and that's called the sovereign's scepter with cross, with the cross, which is really a token of the king or queen's uh, power as the head of state. It's just shy of a meter long, and it weighs just over one kilo. 
Uh, It's decorated with 333 individual diamonds, 31 rubies, 15 emeralds, 7 sapphires, 6 spinels. I don't even know what a spinel is. It sounds expensive. Um, And one composite amethyst. I thought amethyst was kind of a drink. But anyway, uh, apparently it's something really expensive. And in 1910, uh, it was redesigned to incorporate the Great Star of Africa, which at over 530 carats is the largest clear-cut diamond in the world. Think about the value of that one item of treasure. Officially priceless. That is how the psalmist feels about this word of God. Read with me, verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. You see, the psalmist has this deep desire for the word of God. With his whole heart, with his whole inner being, he wants to seek the word of God. The word of God is the most precious treasure to him. Knowing it, meditating on it, enjoying it. It's this deep source of satisfaction and joy. It brings this deep contentment to the psalmist. So much joy in this word that nothing else in the world compares to. You know, one of the primary purposes of this psalm as a whole is to draw us into the psalm's joy that he has in this word. You know, psalm 119 is filled with the psalmist's love for the word. Here's just a selection of a few occasions in the psalm. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. Verse 40, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. Verse 47, for I find my delight in your commandments, which I love. Verse 70, their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. Verse 92, if your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. Verse 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Verse 127, therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. Verse 161, princes persecute me without cause, but my heart stands in awe of your words. Verse 167, my soul keeps your testimonies. I love them exceedingly. Now, Psalm 119 is this invitation to come and taste the goodness of God in his word. But here's the thing. For many of us, this kind of desire is so foreign. It's not our experience. And for many of us, if we're honest with ourselves, often we find ourselves with little desire for God's word. Now, reading through this list of the psalmist's deep desire for God's word, you know, this week, I found it really convicting. And I, and I found myself asking the question, do I have that kind of deep desire? You know, sometimes it feels like in reading the word, you're just kind of going through the motions, right? Just kind of going through this regular pattern of reading. And the question I've been thinking about is this. 
Where does this psalmist find this intense desire for God's word? And how do we get in on it? Well, the answer we find in verse 12. Psalmist says this. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your commandments. You see, the psalmist sees that the Lord is supremely blessed. That word in Hebrew, Baruch, it means filled with strength, worthy of praise, worthy of adoration. See, to see God for who he really is, to see his supreme in power, to supreme in his worthiness of praise in a way that nothing else in the universe compares to, is to want to learn from him. To see he's supremely blessed. To see that all of our happiness and joy in life depends on him. To see him as he truly is, is to desire to be instructed by him. You see, God is the fount of every blessing. And he desires to draw near, the psalmist does, and receive something of his blessedness. But here's the truth. We've come to see the blessedness of God in a way that this psalmist could never have even dreamed. John, in his gospel, in chapter 1, verse 14, says this. He says, And the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we have seen his glory as glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, the blessed God that the psalmist saw but a glimpse of is actually a father loving his son through the Holy Spirit. The eternal son, the word of God who became man, who sacrificially died on the cross to rescue us from our plight, to lead us to spiritual new birth and who is present in every person who has repented and believed upon him through the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the key to desire for the word of God is to see the blessed God whose word it is. You see, the word of God is in fact the word of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one willing to shed his blood for you. This word is about him. Every page in some way points to and is fulfilled by him. To soak in the scriptures is to learn his heart. It's to learn about what he loves and what he hates. It's how we know him. It's how we love him. It's how we please him. You know, Jesus himself taught in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. You know, when Jesus tells this parable about a man finding treasure in the field, what was that treasure meant to point to? Well, Jesus himself answers it in the parable. The kingdom of heaven is like the kingdom of heaven, the place where God dwells in power. The treasure is God himself. You see, a big part of our problem in our Christian culture is that we've separated relationship with God from love for his word. 
You know, when we think about a relationship with Jesus, we think about our joining with Jesus through faith in Christ. We think about the grace that he's extended to us at the cross. We think about quiet moments in prayer with silence and solitude. But when we think about the word, we think about something we should be reading. We feel maybe a bit guilty that we're not. And we think primarily in terms of a duty we have. And often, if we're honest, something that's a bit dull. But think with me for a moment. Imagine if I said of Charlotte, my wife, you know what? I love Charlotte so much. She's so precious to me. And I just love the way she looks. And I love spending time with her and enjoying her company so much. But I really find the things that she says pretty dry. Actually, I kind of find them quite dull and kind of boring. And so I really, I don't often listen to her. Do I really love Charlotte if I don't love the things she says? No, I don't. I might love the idea of Charlotte. I might love the Charlotte of my imagination. But I would not love my precious bride, Charlotte Jan Willis. So too it is with the word of God. You can't say you love the Lord Jesus, if you don't love this, his word. Your love for the word of God is really the measure of your love for God. Just as we've been reading in John 1.14, Jesus is in fact the word of God himself become flesh for us. This is his word. Just as Jesus goes on to teach in John 14.15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And then verse 23, he says, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. But whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the Father's who sent me. You can't love the Lord Jesus if you don't love his words. But here's the truth. The opposite is also true. If you love the Lord Jesus, you will love his word. It might be weak. You might frequently lose focus. You might struggle with understanding. You might periodically wander away, but you will love his word. Why? Because to love him is to love to hear from him. To, to love to hear his counsel, his wisdom, his correction, his guidance, his comfort, his encouragement, his promises, his laws, his example. You will crave it. And that's why the psalmist so loved this word. He saw that it was a priceless treasure that reflected the very heart of God himself. And that's point number two, a priceless treasure. But not just point number two, now we come to our final point, point number three, the psalmist's practice. 
You know, one of the things that I love about this psalm is that the psalmist doesn't just describe his heart for God's word, but his practice as well. He's immensely practical. It's not just that this word is a life-giving path. It's not just that this word is a priceless treasure, but he helps us to see what he does in response as well. You know, if you're listening in online, or maybe you're here this morning, and you wouldn't normally describe yourself as a Christian, this is a wonderful way to really to get to know God and to get to know the heart of Christ in particular. You know, if you've been following Jesus for a long time, however, and you're listening in on this, I'm going to give a list of four different things that I'm going to pull from uh, our little stanza this morning. And I just encourage you, don't try and put into practice all of these different things that our psalmist does in this, in this psalm. Maybe just pick one of them, one of them that you might give focused attention to uh, this year, at the start of the year in uh, 2021. And the first one we read about uh, is in verse 11, and that is that he memorizes the word of God. Read with me again, verse 11. He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know what? In 2021, it's common to hear people say, there's no point in memorizing scripture in 2021. We've got iPhones. Just look it up. Right? This word that we read here, uh, stored up, is a word which is often used of treasure in the Bible. It means to keep it safe and secure. And this word heart in the Hebrew understanding of heart is actually the inner you. It's probably more similar to the mind in how we would talk. And so his point is this. Store up inside of your heart, inside of your mind, the word of God like a treasure. The purpose? To stop you from sinning against the Lord. You see, when you put scripture to memory, you have it constantly at your disposal to help guide you. And you can't do that if you're merely searching for verses you vaguely remember on the internet. It's not just for your outward actions as well. It's for your inner ones as well, your inner wrestles of the heart, the trusting God as well. You know, if you want to grow in 2021 in your love for Christ and his word, if you want to grow in your purity of life, if you want to grow in wisdom, in love and knowledge of our Lord, if you want to experience more of the life-giving power of treasuring God's word, try memorizing scripture. Start small. Pick a verse a week. Maybe follow our SG Kids uh, weekly memory verses that they have. You might want to put them to memory. Maybe pick a verse from your devotion each week and decide that you're going to memorize it. But that's the first instruction that the psalmist gives us. He memorizes the word. He stores it up in his heart. But secondly, more than just memorizing it, he speaks the word. Read with me verse 13. He says, with my lips, I declare all the rules of your mouth. You know, this word declare here is a word that in Hebrew is actually related to the word for counting. And that's why in older versions, you might hear it say, I will name your words one by one. It's this idea of counting them out, repeating them often. The way it's written in the original language suggests that this was the usual practice of the psalmist. He is constantly speaking and sharing with others the word of God. He's not just reading and delighting in what he reads. The overflow of his delight is that he speaks about it with others. 
And that's true with us as well. We speak about what we love. But the truth is that so often we can fail to ever share the word of God with others. Do you want to grow in your love for God's word in 2021? Do you want to experience more of the life-giving power of treasuring God's word? Well, join with the psalmist in sharing it with others. You know, here's something I've used over the years. I've uh, tried to underline a verse uh, from my reading that kind of sticks out to me and either put it to memory or write it down perhaps and stick it in your pocket and then look for opportunities throughout the day to share it with someone else. Maybe share it with your kids. Maybe share it with your wife or your spouse or your housemates. Maybe even pray and ask God for an opportunity to share it with someone at work or to share it with a neighbor. You'll be surprised about the number of times that God will answer that prayer. And another way in which you can declare the words of God with your mouth is to actually find songs that are filled with God's truth and to sing them. Uh, Singing Sovereign Grace music or even uh, there's a group called the Sons of Korah and literally all they do is they take psalms and they put them to music so you can sing psalms straight from the Bible as well. And that's the second practice of the psalmist is that he, he speaks the word of God. So firstly, he memorizes it. Secondly, he speaks it. But thirdly, he meditates on it. We read that in verse 15. Psalmist says, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. You know, when we think about meditation in our culture, we usually think of New Age spirituality or maybe Buddhism, where the focus is kind of meditation as emptying your mind, like getting rid of all your thoughts and casting them aside. But different from Buddhist meditation, which is emptying your mind, Christian meditation is actually about filling your mind, filling your mind with the glories that are found in this word of God. You know, here in this passage, it's referring to a thoughtful concentration on God's word. Because the context of this passage is about the psalm's delight in God's word, it's a joyful concentration on God's word. You take a small passage of scripture, a verse of scripture, And you read it over and over and over again until you mine it for all of its riches. You know, interestingly, in the first psalm, at the the beginning of the book of Psalms, you might be familiar with the blessed man who his delight is in the law or the Torah of God. His delight is in the instruction of God and he meditates meditates on it day and night. Notice this psalm doesn't say, This blessed man's delight is in the law or instruction of the Lord, and on it he reads day and night. No, the psalm doesn't say that. It says the blessed man is the one who not reads, although he is reading, he meditates on the law of the Lord. This psalmist is the one, the blessed man is the one who loves when God instructs him, and he meditates on the things God says day and night. Well, the obvious question then to think about that is, well, how do you actually do that? How do you actually practice Christian meditation? How do do, do we do this? And thankfully, there's actually thousands of years of Christian uh, Christian tradition on meditation, on uh, reflection on Scripture. And if you're unfamiliar with it, I just invite you to just invite someone from church to disciple you in this, to help you in this. 
A really useful resource on this is from Tim Keller's book on prayer, where he takes Martin Luther's writing about Christian meditation and kind of simplifies it into four R's, four simple R's. Reflect, rejoice, repent, and then request. So you take a passage and you reflect on it. What does this actually mean? What is this actually about? Then you, after reflecting on it, you rejoice. How does this passage lead me to just praise God and worship God for who he is? And then you take the passage and you think about repent. How does this lead me to repent of where I'm not aligned with what this passage says? And lastly, request. What does this lead me to ask God for in response to this passage? And just a simple way to help you dive into a small passage of Scripture and, and to suck the marrow out. You know, even this week I was reading uh, in Matthew's Gospel, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, where Jesus calls uh, Simon Peter and Andrew and he says, Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And that just verse stood out to me. I was just thinking on it, thinking on it, thinking on it. I was like, what does that mean? Fishers of men, what does it mean? It's like... Fisher of men, I guess it's it's someone whose whole orientation of life now is about rescuing other people, grabbing them like fish out of a stream and taking them aside and and, and saving them. And then I was just thinking about that. And how does that lead me to praise God? I was like, well, isn't it amazing that one of the first things Jesus says to those that would follow him is, I want you to be about the business of saving others. And isn't that how God has saved me? And, And then that led me to realize, you know, like on the repentance piece, it's like, but I've kind of lost my direction here a bit. I haven't been thinking about myself as a fisher of men. I've been thinking about myself as all these different things I need to get done for myself. And then that led me again to like pray and ask God that he refocus me on being a fisher of men and not getting so distracted by other things. It's just a simple way of meditating on and, and taking all the goodness from a really small piece of Scripture. And that is the third piece that he meditates on God's word. You want to experience more of the life-giving power of treasuring God's word in 2021, join with the psalmist and start meditating on the things God says. But lastly, it's not just that he memorizes it. It's not just that he speaks it. It's not just that he meditates on it. But lastly, he prays that God would keep his heart tender towards it. Read with me again verse 10. The psalmist says, With my whole heart, I seek you and hear his prayer. Let me not wander from your commandments. And that's so good. See, this psalmist knows that the natural tendency of all people is to wander away from God. You know, Psalm 1, which I've been talking about, the blessed man whose delight is the Torah, the instruction of God, the blessed man who delights to be told what to do by God. I mean, the thing I've been thinking about is who naturally delights in being told what to do by God? And the answer is no one. No one naturally delights in being told what to do by God. And yet the message of the gospel is if you're a follower of Christ, before the world even existed, God decided he would love you. Not because you are good, but because he is gracious. You were born just like everyone else with no desire to follow him. And yet he opened your eyes to see Jesus. And because he has made you 
the object of his affection, he will carry you every day of your life here on earth. And this psalmist, knowing the sovereign power of God over all things, says, Lord, let me not wander. Keep my heart soft and tender towards your word. Don't let it grow stubborn and unteachable. Now, I wonder if given the number of people here or listening online, there's some of us here this morning who still have little or no desire to spend time in this word. Or perhaps some of us here who have just realized this morning that maybe you've been wandering just a little. And you've lost that passion and love you once had for this word. Or maybe perhaps you're sitting here and all of this is very new to you. You're curious about following Jesus and knowing more about him and this word. The best possible way to close our time together is this, with prayer. It's prayer, just like the psalmist, that God would help us to see that this word is a life-giving path, that it will guide us through the challenges of life. It's a priceless treasure. Nothing compares in its worth, and it displays the very heart of God himself. And lastly, a prayer that he would keep us from wandering, that he would help us to seek him with our whole hearts. You join with me in praying as we close our time together. But God, we want to pause and just do that. We want to thank you as we thanked you right back at the beginning of our time, that you've revealed yourself as a gracious, loving father with a beloved son who you love through the Holy Spirit. You are a God of love. And we know that firsthand because you have been so loving, merciful and kind to us that you sent that son, our Lord Jesus, to die for us that we could know you. You didn't just leave us rescued and alone. No, you, you, you've left us with your very words. Words that are like shining lights in that they show us the life-giving path ahead, how we can know you and please you and live for you. A word that is a priceless treasure because it reveals your very heartbeat and the things you love. And so, Lord, how can we do anything in response? To call upon your name and ask, Lord, you forgive us. Forgive us for the ways in which we trivialize your words, in which we ignore them or treat them as dull and boring and we refuse to spend time with them or even just treat it as though it's a duty and not a delight. And Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you make them tender towards you? Would you help us to love and treasure your words because they're your words and we love you, Lord. And in response, would our lives ever increasingly 
reflect your heart and be holy for your praise. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.